morning. <clears throat> Here at uh, Providence Bible Church, we do not believe in sharpening our organizational skills. We are led by the Spirit. That's bad. No, we're not. It's not just good to be here, it's a blessing to be here. And when we gather together and we encounter the Lord corporately, it almost causes me to dread going back out there. But I do believe that the Lord wants to maybe speak to us about that idea this morning. Several years ago, my family and I lived in Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and we cultivated a friendship with a married couple there. And one evening when we were having dinner with this couple, they began to tell us, specifically the wife, her name was Karen, began to tell us about their dating experience from the outset of their relationship. And they had determined that they would maintain their integrity, they would maintain their purity by abstaining from any type of physical relationship before marriage, and that's exactly what they did. Now, I would have expected Karen to say something like, you know what, it was my deep love and commitment for the Lord that caused me to stay true to the, to the path and stay on the path of purity. But that's not what she said. What she said instead was, it was my deep love and care and commitment and affection for my dad that kept me on the path of, pur of purity. Her dad was a high school superintendent. He was a leader in the local church that they grew up in, and he was well-known and he was well-respected in the community. And according to her own words, it made me sick at the thought of compromising his reputation. Now, Initially, I think that's a pretty noble motivation. I would take that. I kind of, I kind of like the idea of my daughters being so committed to me and so committed to my reputation that that would contribute to the modification of their behavior. I like that. But the reality is that really is a lowering of a standard, isn't it? I mean, what happens if for some unknown reason, I begin to prove myself unworthy in their eyes? What happens if I do something foolish and I lose their respect? What then? What happens at that point? You see, there's a, there's a number of variables and a multitude of reasons as to why there has to be something in place for my children and all of us that is far greater than I, that is far greater worth than you. And I believe that that's the way that the Apostle Paul wants to encourage us this morning. You know, Paul's telling us that to live is Christ and to die is gain, but he seems to be pressing the Philippians to live. There's a gospel life to be lived. There's a gospel message to be proclaimed. There is a unity that has to be fought to obtain. There is a perspective of suffering that we need to have that helps 
drive us in this thing called the Christian life. Now, what does all that mean? I believe that it means that we have to have in faith, we have to have faith in something way beyond each and every one of us. We have to have faith in something greater than the human spirit. We have to have faith in something greater than the human will. We have to have faith in something greater or more hopeful than the next presidential candidate. We have to have faith in something in the midst of the reality that everything around us is in the process of perishing. We have to have faith in something or someone that remains. And so, my suggestion this morning is that that faith is found in the Gospel. Now, last week we talked about the worth of the Gospel. This week we're going to talk about the faith of or the faith in the Gospel. But what exactly does that even mean? I believe it means a couple of things. I believe that it means this thing, this holy thing, so holy that we have to look to the cross in order to see its true value. This thing called salvation that God has worked, is working into our lives, we now play somewhat of a role in working that salvation out in the way that we live our lives. We now play a role in contributing to the encouragement of the transformation of our very lives, the transformation of our thinking, the transformation of our decisions, our enthusiasms, our affections, our everyday choices, and the only way that I know how to do that, the only way that I know how to encourage you to do that is to go back to the cross of Jesus Christ, the core of the Gospel, that place where we see God is doing something for us that we could never do ourselves and cultivate a a faith in that fact alone in the fact of what God has done. There's another way that I think that we can have faith in the gospel. And I think that is simply having faith in at least one of the ways that God chooses to advance the gospel. Probably in some way, each of us are living in some type of circumstances this morning that have the element and the tint of being unfavorable. Maybe it's physical sickness. Maybe it's some type of tragic accident that has crept into our lives. Maybe we're engaged in some type of conflict. Maybe it's marital. Maybe it's vocational. But I want to suggest that if we are walking and following the person of Jesus Christ, I want to suggest that that conflict, that that form of suffering, it is designed by God for the advance of the gospel. Now, those are the ideas I want to explore. So I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this morning. Philippians chapter 1, we're going to read verses 27 through 30. 
Paul says. And we'll finish up this section of Scripture this morning. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's going to be our emphasis for the most part today. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Let's, let's pray. Father, we are, we are truly just thankful and delighted and joyful to be here this morning with each other, to be encouraged, to be reminded, to be renewed, to be equipped. And God, just as we gather together, and, and I know just as I personally have just experienced your, your presence and the joy of being with your people, what a reminder. What a reminder of the need that I have when I'm not here. God, I need something. We need something. We need, we need to encourage ourselves. We need to know how to encourage each other. Lord, would you, would you help us today? Would you speak to us? Would you, would you do those things in us, God, that would, would help us to, to live lives that are definitely worthy of the gospel throughout the week? Lord, that's our, our very simple prayer. Help us. Help us to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to pull two principles from this passage of Scripture this morning. The first is, we're going to look at the principle of faith in the gospel to grow in Christian conduct. It is faith in the gospel that's going to help us grow in Christian conduct. And then we're going to briefly look at faith in God's sovereignty to advance the gospel. And we're going to look at how God sovereignly has designed to do that. Faith in the gospel to grow in Christian conduct. Let's look at verse 27 again for the second time. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. I've realized something about people, about us. And if I need to make it personal, I will. I've realized something about myself. I crave affirmation. Now, that's not always all bad. But those pats on the back at work, they're longed for, they're enjoyed, and sometimes they're even sought out because I liked being confirmed as a person who has worth. We desire affirmation from our spouse. Children desire affirmation from their parents. And there's even a sense in which parents sometimes, and maybe it's in kind of a twisted way, but there's even a sense that we sometimes seek out affirmation from our children. You see, I long to sit down with my daughter and talk to her, for example, about the idea of dating. 
and hear her say, Oh, Dad, you are so right and wise and intelligent. Dad, yes, you're right. I will obey. Now, of course, my chief and primary concern is what I would believe would be God's best purposes for her. But I still want the affirmation of knowing that I have spoken such wise, lofty words that have penetrated her heart that she has no other option but to obey me. Okay. In other words, her joyful obedience, her steadfast obedience affirms and confirms my parenting skills. We're wired to want affirmation based on accomplishment. That's why it's so important that we maintain the construction of how verse 27 was intended to be read because it destroys the idea of affirmation or worth based on accomplishment. Maybe better said, it destroys the idea of affirmation or worth based on our accomplishment and points toward affirmation or worth based on Christ's accomplishment. Now, when I talk about worth, I'm not just talking about worth in the context of our salvation. I think most of us probably have grasped that idea. The only reason I have worth is because of the worth of Christ that was imputed to me through His righteousness. I think we have that. The idea of worth that I'm talking about this morning is in the context of a manner of life. A way that God is calling us to live. Specifically, a manner of life that Paul is talking about when he says that we are to stand firm. We're to have one mind. We're to be striving side by side, not frightened of our opponents, confirmed in our salvation. We have a right perspective of suffering, how to view suffering, suffering, and recognizing that suffering is a gift. I think that Paul's suggestion is very clear that the only possible way that we can live in a manner worthy of the gospel is based on the accomplishments of Christ. And my faith in Christ's accomplishments. Paul says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. The word worthy, it's derivative of the Greek word axios. It's a weighing term, and it means to weigh. So we have a pretty clear picture in front of us of what it is that Paul's trying to say. We have a picture in front of us of a set of scales. A beam, a beam that pivots. And on each end of the beam are weighing pans. And so you take a standard weight. Let's say we take a standard one pound weight. And we put that one pound weight in one of the pans on one end of the beam. And it automatically becomes unbalanced. And then we take another object or objects. So let's say that we have a bag of marbles. And we begin to fill up the other pan on the other end of the beam until, until what? Until those scales begin to balance out. Until those scales begin to balance out, and then what do we have? What truth do we have before us other than the fact that we have now a pound of marbles? 
We have the fact that what we now have, as we look at these scales that are balanced out, we now have oxios. We now have worth. And we now have worth because we have two different things that now carry the same value. They carry the same value in this context or in this example because they now have the same weight, if that makes sense. So Paul is making a suggestion to us that we do something very relevant here. He has a very clear purpose. He's saying take these two things and place them in the balance. Take the worth of the gospel and place it in the balance against the worth of your life and now measure your life. Measure your decisions. Measure the motive behind your decision. Measure the content of your dreams and your goals. Measure the conduct that you have in your marriage. Measure your view of humility. Measure your perspective of suffering. But don't measure these things against some vague human potential. Don't measure these things against something as fickle as the human will. I'm going to commit to this. Measure these things against the only plumb line that has any worth, the only plumb line that will endure when everything else fades away. Measure the worth of your conduct against the worth of the gospel and see if there's an equilibrium there. See if there is a balance. But what does Paul mean when he talks about this balance? I mean, really, what's the expectation when Paul is encouraging us and demanding us to measure the worth of our conduct against the worth of the gospel. We're not comparing apples to apples here. There's no way that the worth of our conduct is going to be in perfect balance with the worth of the gospel. So what is it that he's wanting from us? I think the thing that we can have in balance is the worth of the gospel and our perspective of the worth of the gospel the worth of the gospel and our hope in the worth of the gospel. The worth of the gospel and our dependence on the worth of the gospel. The worth of the gospel and our perspective of advancing the gospel because of its worth. I believe that's what the Apostle Paul is is referring to. But I think that's also why he says that we have to have faith in the very gospel that we're measuring our lives against. Let's look again at verse 27. I think he's highlighting the reality that measuring our conduct against it's not enough. We have to have faith in it. Verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Listen, Paul is not wanting us or needing us to put the worth of our conduct in balance with the worth of the gospel so that the balance will do this and we'll see how bad we are. Paul's not doing that. And the reason that Paul's not doing that is because faith doesn't do that. Faith would have to look backward to who we were. okay? But faith in the gospel does not look back to past behavior. 
faith in the gospel looks forward and trusts the things that are unknown. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the things in front of us, and the conviction of things not yet seen. The reason that the Apostle Paul wants to measure the worth of our conduct against the worth of the gospel is so that, yeah, we'll see the imbalance, but in that imbalance, we're going to see that there is a very wild, a very real, a very radical hope that I can be better than what I am. When I see the worth of the gospel, I realize it is so much greater than I. There really is hope that I can be a better husband than what I am. There really is hope that I can be more joyful as I travel through life than how normally joyful I really am. There really is hope that I can be more selfless than I really am on a day-to-day basis. There really is hope that I can care more about and give my life more to the cause of Christ than I normally or typically do. There really is, there really is hope for me. Yes, the imbalance is great, but as, but as, as great as the imbalance is, that's as great as the hope is. So, when we look at our marriages, for example, if I measure my marriage or I measure my conduct in my marriage simply and solely against the worth of the gospel. Now, there's purpose in that, okay? But I'm measuring the worth of my conduct in marriage simply and solely against the worth of the gospel, the worth of God the God of the gospel, the worth of the truth of the gospel, my conversation or statement might be something like this. Yes, my marriage is struggling. My heart's heavy. My my mind is tired. My will is seeming indifferent. I'm tired of trying. And I'm never going to arrive at the height of perfection that I see in God when I measure the worth of my conduct against the worth of the gospel. My marriage is hopeless because obviously I am hopeless. You see, in Isaiah 6, when Isaiah simply measured his life against God, when he simply measured the worth of his conduct against who God was, he stated the obvious. Oh God, I am undone. I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. But when I measure my marriage or my conduct in my marriage against the worth of the gospel as a person having faith, in the very gospel that I'm measuring myself against, that's a little bit of a game changer, and my statement goes a little bit more like this. Yes, my marriage is still struggling. Yeah, my heart's still heavy. My mind is still tired. My will is still indifferent. Yes, I'm still tired of this. But yet, when I look to and have faith in the height of the perfections of Christ as seen in the worth of the gospel, God, it's at that point that I look to you and depend on your capability. I look to you and depend on your capacity. God, I look to you to do for us in the framework of our marriage God, what we in no way could ever do of ourselves. And when Isaiah stopped simply measuring the worth of his conduct against the worth of God, and again, 
perfect purpose in that. Woe is me. We need, we need to know and feel and experience the weight of woe is me. But when he exercised his faith in the worth of God based on the redemption that he experienced from God, everything changed. It's no longer woe is me. It's God, I'll go wherever you say go. God, I'll do whatever you say do. And if you notice in Isaiah 6, God was in no way placing a heavy burden on Isaiah to do anything or go anywhere. Isaiah simply overheard a Trinitarian conversation and said, wow, I've seen who you are. I have seen the worth of what you've done. As I have experienced your redemption, God, I will go wherever you say go based simply on my conscious freedom to choose, I go. That's the difference. But I think it's real important to note, and I won't be able to spend a lot of time on this, I think it's important to note that when we're talking about faith, I think it's important to realize that faith has a need. Faith has to be fueled. Faith has to be fed. We can talk about you need to have faith in this or that, but that faith has to be somehow fueled. Romans 10.7 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the Word of God. The Word of God is where we have our Isaiah experiences and the worth of who God is begins to overshadow the worth that we've placed on ourselves and the worth that we've placed on the world. And in order for the worth of the world to be overtaken by the worth of the gospel, we have to follow the Apostle Paul's instructions in 2 Corinthians 3.18 because he tells us to do something. 2 Corinthians 3.18 And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, then are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another degree of glory. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's as if Paul is saying, in order for you to be everything that God has called you to be, you have to daily behold the glory of God. How do I do that? Do I do that simply by viewing creation? Well, I can experience a little bit of the glory of God. But the full capacity or the ability to experience as much of the glory of God as any man possibly humanly can is going to be found in our pursuit of the Word of God. Now, having said that, there's another element of faith that I want to speak about briefly. And it's faith found in the fact that Christian suffering is for advancing the gospel. Let's go back and read verse 29. Please. Verse 29. Paul says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. In March of 2004, five missionaries were traveling through northern Iraq. You may remember it. They were ambushed. Four of them were murdered. 
Months before that trip, a lady who was a part of that group, her name was Karen Watson, she had given a letter to her pastor in Bakersfield, California, to be read only in the event that she may lose her life on this mission trip, and this is what it said. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible, my heart for the nations. I need you to know something. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to Him. I was called to His glory. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. And then went on to say, care more than some think is wise, risk more than some think is safe, dream more than some think is practical, and expect more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or success, but to obedience. Now, a few weeks later, Al Mohler is speaking at chapel service at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, and he reflects on the tragedy that took place with these four deaths. And he said, As we first heard this word of these four deaths, we realized that the cause of the gospel needed at least four more. That's just status quo. Four more. But advance is going to take far more than four. And I want to encourage you that we are all called, brought into the reality of the advancement of the gospel based on how we suffer. Now, I've not only realized that I really love and crave affirmation. I I realize that I love myself. But you know what? The, the great deception of that really is never ending. I always love myself and I always let myself down. It's like a it's like a horrible vicious ugly nightmare. It's an ongoing cycle. I love myself, I let myself down. I love myself I let myself down. It's like picking a daisy. Love myself? Well, no, I don't really. I love myself, but I never satisfy myself. And it's amazing that I can be so given to myself. And the reality is, historically, the greatest thing that I'm most consistent at is letting myself down. Listen, God loves you. God loves you. God's, God loves you. God loves me. God's committed to you. But understand that God's commitment to us is never detached from His commitment to His own glory. God's commitment to us is always coupled with His commitment to His own glory. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me tell you, that means that God is very faithful in giving us what we need and not what we want. Because the reality is, we don't really know what we need. We're very good at stating what we want, but we have no clue in the big scheme of things according to God's great design. We have no clue what it is that we really need for our own good. We have no clue. God gives us what we need. God does not give us what we want. God gives us suffering. 
because we need suffering for our own good. See, I may think I need to reach Beckley for the glory of God, and God may think, no, you need faith, and in order for faith to be cultivated in your life, you need to suffer a little bit. Because reaching Beckley for the glory of God That's something that God can do without me. But because God is committed to me and He is committed to His own glory, He's going to give me what I need. I may think that Africa needs me and Africa is waiting for me and the work that God wants to do in Africa can't take place until I get to Africa. And God's saying, no, I don't need you in Africa. You don't know what you need. You need affliction because you don't have faith Oh, you of little faith. So he brings suffering into my life and is faithful to me and is faithful to his own glory by giving me not what I think I need, but what he knows that I need. There comes a time for every true Christian who is committed to following the person of Christ when God lovingly knocks out from under us all of the crutches that we have that we think are things like faith and commitment and sufficiency, He is so faithful to knock all of those faithful crutches out and begin to chip away at this false mirage that we have where we think we're following Him. He gives us suffering. And He does that to advance the Gospel for His own glory. As a matter of fact, Paul says, it has been granted to you to not only believe, but to suffer. Now, in that root word, in that root Greek word for granted is the word haris, which is the Greek word for grace. So Paul is saying God gives two gifts of grace. One is belief and the other one is suffering. Now, when we think of suffering, perhaps our minds immediately run to explicit direct persecution persecution like we read about of the of the four missionaries who went to northern Iraq but i think that paul highlights the reality that we may be suffering in our own way and even in our suffering which may not be escalated to that point it is a suffering for christ don't ever think that your bad back is not an opportunity to suffer for Christ and advance the gospel. Don't ever think that. Look at what Paul says in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-five through 28, if you would want to turn there with me. Paul says this about his suffering. <clears throat> he says, three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now, I want you to notice what Paul doesn't do. Paul does not differentiate between being beaten with rods and missing a few meals. Paul does not differentiate between being stoned by his own brethren and not sleeping in a night. Paul makes it clear that God has sovereignly designed the missing of a meal 
the same way that He is sovereignly designed being beaten with rods. Your suffering is legitimate and it has a place in the advancement of the Gospel regardless of where it fits on this thing that we want to call and establish the spectrum of suffering. It has to look like this. No, no, there is no, there is no greater tool for teaching our children than to teach them this is who I'm holding on to in the midst of this moment of suffering. And there's never a moment of suffering that's too little or too light to highlight as a moment to advance the gospel in our homes or in our churches. Never never a moment of suffering that's too light. It's not about the degree of suffering. It's about the purpose of suffering. Of Of course some suffer more than others. But you're here and you are possibly, you are probably in some form, some fashion, you're suffering. What an opportunity to highlight the glory of God and advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at what Paul says back up to chapter 1 verse 12 of Philippians. The purpose of suffering. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, what's he talking about? My imprisonment, my suffering. This is its purpose. What has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment, my suffering is for Christ. Now let's reread verse 29 and 30 of chapter 1. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You see what's happening to me as you see me suffer? That's the same gift of grace that God is giving to you. You can do what I do. I'm suffering, you can suffer. As a matter of fact, you will suffer. Suffering is inevitable for every individual here. It is coming. If you're not experiencing it now, beloved, you will. It's coming. But it has a divine purpose for the Christian. And it's to advance the gospel in our lives, in the lives of our children, and in the viewing world around us that's constantly watching us. You see, the main difference between us and the lost world in relation to suffering is that we know that suffering has been given to us And it has a very divine purpose. We know that because we know that God is sovereign over suffering. Well, what if I don't believe that? What if I don't believe that my suffering is a direct intervention and a divine gift from God? What if I don't believe that? Well, I say to you with the most care and compassion that I possibly can, I feel sorry for you if you don't believe that. And the reason that I feel sorry for you is because if you do not believe that the suffering that you are going through is sovereignly, has been sovereignly given to you by God, then you can't believe that God is sovereign over the way that you're going to recover. You can't believe that God is sovereign in the way that He wants to heal you. You can't believe that God is sovereign in what it is that He's really wanting to accomplish in your life. If you don't believe that God is the one that is sovereign over your suffering, then you don't believe that God has a purpose in what He's doing in your life right now. 
There's no better way to preach the gospel than through our suffering. <clears throat> yeah, I, I think we can approach people and we can say, you know what? This is what you need to do to shape it up. This is what you need to change. You need to quit this. You need to quit that. And you need to start doing that. We can do that. I just don't think that's going to advance the gospel. But what will advance the gospel sometimes so much more than our words is what it is that we're clinging to in the midst of suffering when the world is saying, are you stupid? When the world is going out kicking and screaming and fighting and angry, and we're saying, look, I have something to cling to that's way above and way beyond me. There's no better way that I know of to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's having a very healthy conversation with a person that's very, very, very dear to my heart. And this person said, <clears throat> do you ever feel like a hypocrite? And it wasn't, have hey, noticed that you're hypocritical. It was, do you ever feel that way? <clears throat> and my immediate response was, I guess I have to say, yeah, there are times I do. There are times I do feel that way. I guess that when the opportunity's there to teach, to try to instruct people on how they should live, how God's calling them to live, and I find myself struggling with some of those same things, yeah, I guess there are times that I have to say maybe I do. Now, what I can say that I know is every time I feel unworthy. But let me tell you why I don't and can't camp there very long. It's because, and this is what I said to that person, because I know, I know who I am, I know what I do, I know what defines me, but I know that there is a hope found in the fact that I don't have to continue to be the person that I am today. Listen, my marriage doesn't, I don't, I don't have to be the same man in my marriage that my father was in his marriage. I don't have to be, I don't have to be that same person. There is hope for me because, because of the worth of the gospel. So we kind of find ourselves back at the same place, don't we? We kind of find ourselves back at that starting point where God's calling us to focus on cultivating the value of our lives. Okay, the end result of that is we suffer, we advance the gospel. Then what happens is somebody else, because we've advanced the gospel, somebody else tries to cultivate their life, they suffer, they advance the gospel. Somebody cultivate, cultivates their life, they suffer, they advance the gospel. That's kind of the, the cycle that we find ourselves in. But listen, there's no greater calling than that. God loves us enough to say, I'm giving you a gift. Suffer. Suffer. How do you feel about that? Is that that kind of gift that you want to keep the receipt on and then when Christmas time rolls around you say, I don't really like this one. I want to send this back. Maybe initially it is. But when God begins through suffering to chip away at our selfishness, man, when He begins to chip away at the reality of who we are, and He begins to chip away at callousness and hard-heartedness, anger, and malice, all drugs, and then it becomes, oh God, 
That's the purpose. That's the purpose of suffering. Now, my prayer is that you will find faith. Josiah, if you come on, and we're going to get ready to sing a few. My prayer is that you would find faith that God would want to advance the gospel that way in your life. We may not be one of the four that's passed away in northern Iraq and have died a martyr's death. I don't believe that's the only way that God's calling the gospel to be advanced. I think He's calling it to be advanced in men and women in their everyday lives as we fall. Sometimes we fall backwards, sometimes we fall forward. We're always falling. But He's calling the gospel to be advanced in the way that we live a life as we exercise faith, not in the worth of ourselves, but in the worth of the gospel. Amen to that? And ask if you would to bow your heads with me. Father, we're thankful that you are the giver of great gifts. And God, I'm so thankful that you're not like an earthly father that gives based upon what we think we need. I'm so thankful that I can't run to you like a spoiled little brat and say, I want this, and you say, okay. I'm thankful that you say, no, son, you don't have a clue. I'm giving you what you need. So thank You, Lord. And I pray that this morning You've given us the, the gift to desire faith. To, as we sang this morning, Lord, to, to go where You say go. To, to do what You say do. Lord, I remember the, the prayer of Moise, of Buddha, Burkina Faso, who said in a prayer, God, I will, I will go where You say go and God, I will do what You say do. Lord, do that in Your people today. And may we embrace what it is that You would have for us knowing that it's a good gift from You, God. And Lord, as I speak for myself, I can be so shallow in my wants. Thank You that You are who You are, that You love us the way You do, and that You give the gifts of grace that You do. Be glorified in our lives, God. Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together.